The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. I'll tell you the best parts of the Robinhood app is there's no commission fees at all. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. It's designed really well, and it's incredibly easy to use. It has easy-to-understand charts and market data. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. And the Robinhood platform also lets you view stock collections, a 100 of the most popular sectors like entertainment, social media, and curated categories like female CEOs and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every single stock. And you learn by doing. You learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. You discover new stocks and trade favorite companies with personalized news feeds that keep you informed about your investments. And with custom notifications for price movements, you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Yes, a free stock. So sign up now at taffer.robinhood.com. That's taffer.robinhood.com. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Well, December 31st, the day of New Year's Eve, and I'm back, John Taffer, with my No Excuses podcast. Wow. Uh, I'm coming off an amazing week last week, but before we even talk about that, I just wanted to talk about New Year's for a minute. You know, we all get a little reflective, I think, even those that don't do New Year's resolutions. You got to stop and think sometimes at the end of the year. What did I nail, man? What did I do well? You know, what worked out for me this year? Where were my victories? And that's, I think, a good, really important talk for you to have with yourself, of course is, you know, what did I do great this year? You know, what am I really proud of? What relationships am I proud of? What personal accomplishments, professional accomplishments, raises, promotions, tasks, successes, victories? What are the things, looking back to this year, that I feel good about that, 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 that were accomplishments that meant something to me? But then comes the next part of this, which is, you know, look back over the year and say to yourself, honestly and frankly, where the hell did I blow it, man? What are the opportunities that I had that I knew, had I done something, maybe I could have turned into it, turned it into something? What are those, and why didn't I? And then get a little angry at yourself, because opportunity loss is a big deal, especially when it's your own life. And when you look going forward at this new year, think about the things you didn't do this past year that you want to do this year. You know, the promotion you want to fight for, the business you want to open uh, uh, the sales goal you want to achieve, maybe you want to get married, maybe it's something far more personal. Whatever it is, identify it. And then take it, don't make it a dream, don't make it an objective, make it a goal, make it something you own. And that's what I've been thinking about uh, the past couple of days. You know, what did I do well this year? What disappointed me this year? And, and I had a good year, no question about it, but there are still disappointments uh, there are disappointments in, in the consulting side of my business. Sometimes we don't achieve objectives. There's disappointments in people, of course. There's disappointments in marketplaces and a lot of things that happen out there. But we have to end this conversation 
with ourselves with an understanding of what changes, what happens this year to make things better. And tonight, the fireworks, the big ball drops, and next year, it's almost like we get to start over again. So determine what it is you want to accomplish next year. And really put a little thought into it. Don't write the New Year's resolutions. Don't stick it to your mirror. Don't tattoo it to your head. Uh, don't go nuts. But do think about it for a couple of minutes. So last week was was a, a week for me that I've been waiting for for a long time. You know, uh, uh, I get to do my reality show. And, and one of the things that I enjoy most about the work that I do is when I go on all the business television channels. And over the past years, I've gone on... MSNBC many times and CNBC many times and I've done broadcasts from the stock exchange floor and interviews and we've talked about market sectors and a restaurant business and gaming in Las Vegas and uh, I love doing these shows. I love doing them for the stock market. That's really, really cool. But uh, uh, between MSNBC, CNBC and Fox Business, I've done a, a well over 100 appearances on all of those shows but never have I ever anchored anything before? I've been a guest and I've done my eight-minute segments and my 12-minute segments and I've talked about the topics and the things that I wanted to talk about and I've answered the questions. But I'll tell you, sitting at that anchor chair is a whole different deal. I mean, the, the pressure of, of transition. Well, last week, and I posted on social media so a lot of you know it, last week I got to actually be a guest anchor for three consecutive days on the evening edit on Fox Business. And it was incredible because, first of all, it was an unbelievable week in the stock market with, with rises and falls and people were freaking out. And so it was a great week to do it. A lot of things going on in government as well. So it was a, a, quite an experience. And I want to thank everybody at Fox Business and Fox News for giving me the chance to do it. Sitting in the anchor chair was a, a – a, um, and I've done hundreds of episodes of, of reality TV, which is live TV, because we don't get to do it a second time. It happens real. It just happens to be taped. Live TV is a whole different deal. And when you're a news anchor, your biggest fear is where are we going? What's next? Is it a clip? Is it an interview? Is it a talk? How do I come in? How do I go out? Where do I go? Well, it was quite an experience. And if you haven't seen it, we posted some clips on my social media pages uh, from the broadcast last week. But it was a lot of fun. And it's interesting when you walk into a building and you're around the MSNBC control room or CNBC or, or Fox Business, which is the one who's been the nicest to me over the years. Fox has invited me back, I don't know, 50, 60 times over the years. You get to know these people, and it teaches me an incredible lesson. And, and you know, I, I don't talk much politics on this show, but I'm an independent. That's what I'm a registered independent. And, you know, you meet people on the other side of an issue, whatever issue that might be. And you realize, yeah, they're good people, they just disagree with me. You know, when you go from a, a one newscast group to another newscast group that has different sides politically and different alliances, you realize quickly how, how great they all are. These are really good people. They just happen to disagree on things. And after an experience that I've had on different sides of the news ledger, so to speak, and realizing how great these people are, whether it's at MSNBC, really good people, it feels like a family when you're there. Or CNBC, and these are really good people, and it feels like a family when you're there. And Fox, and these are really good people, and it feels like a family when you're there. That the political views that they have, as different as they might be, don't change the fact that these are really good people. Their parents and fathers and, and, and brothers and sisters and grandparents in some cases. And in every case, you walk away and say, he's a really good guy. She's really, really nice. So I find it fascinating that we meet people who disagree with us on so many issues 
all the time politically. And we immediately dislike. But yet, when we think about it, people who disagree with us on issues are sometimes people that we really love, enjoy. They make us smile. They make us laugh. So I wanted to leave us with a thought as the new year ends. You know, political views are not representative as to whether one is a nice person or not. They're different political views. Uh, There are saints and wonderful people in life who have a different political view than you do. And there's assholes in this world who have the same political view that we have. So I'm hoping in this new year that we can treat each other with a little more dignity, that we can be more respectful of differing opinions, still like each other, still understand that nine out of the ten people that you meet in this world, regardless of their political affiliation, are nice people that you're probably glad you met. And I think that should be the leading determination of how we treat each other, remembering that most people we meet are nice and great, and we should treat them that way before they prove us wrong. And that a political issue unto itself does not an asshole make. Ooh, that was pretty profound. What do you think of that, Corey? A political issue does, is not an asshole make. So the fact of the matter is, again, remember, people who agree with you are jerks, and sometimes people who disagree with you are the greatest people you've ever met. Let's remember that as we go into the new year. And lastly, and I'll stop with my new year stuff in a minute here. Lastly, uh, end of the year, I just wanted us to note something. The world is less threatening right now. We don't have as many missiles flying around. There are more conversations. We have a trade moratorium with China. We're not charging more tariffs to each other. Uh, There's conversations and calls going on. So the world is actually put the political disagreements aside for a moment. The world is not more dangerous right now. It seems to be a tad more safer. Fact of the matter is income is up for middle America. Fact is unemployment is down for middle America. As I said, we have a lesser of a threat. So let's smile. Let's have a great New Year's, and let's understand that next year could be a great year if we just start treating each other with a little more dignity. And my last point, after being on Fox last week, you know, when you, when you do newscasts, you get to see the, the press junket feeds and all sorts of information. You're, you're really watching the pulse of America in real time. It's all crossing your computer screen. And everybody's talking, everybody's talking about what is the biggest threat to America. It's Russia. It's China. Those are the biggest threats to America. I really believe the biggest threat to America right now is each other. Either we come together or we don't. And the future of our country and the attitude of our country and the affection and the love and the goodness of who and what we are can only change if we change it. So I laugh at China and I laugh at Russia, but I don't laugh at where we are. And again, I'm back to dignity. And I know that I'm going to work hard to treat people with much more dignity who disagree with me this coming year. Well, we got a great show. I got Owen Smith. Owen Smith is one of my favorite comedians in the country. Owen was a chief writer for Whitney. Are we there yet? Blackish stand-up comedian. Uh, Owen and I are friends. I love the guy. Just I can't stop laughing when I'm around him. But Owen's story is fascinating. He comes from the Bahamas or went to Notre Dame, became a a a, a world-class comedian, and, and I really wanted to get him here. Uh, uh, to really share his story with us. So I'm really happy Owen's here with me today. I want to take a minute and thank my sponsors, MyPillow, BetDSI, and TrueCar. So there's some interesting stories in the news, some fun year-end stuff that I thought it was interesting to talk about. But here's a great feel-good story. So 
A gentleman's daughter has to work over the holidays, and she's a, a flight attendant on an airline. And her father is an older gentleman, retired, and he really wanted to spend uh, Christmas Day with his daughter. So he booked every flight that she's working, every leg on every flight, and he is going to be on board with her all day long today for Christmas. I thought that was a sort of a neat story. Also, I was looking online, and this is sort of strange things that, that, that'll make your eyebrows raise for a moment. So what were the top Google searches of 2018? Well, the number one by far, believe it or not, on the uh, total search front was the World Cup which took the stop, top spot in Google uh, uh, um, and uh, on other search engines. and But when it came to a better financial future, the number one financial search was, and people think taxes, blah, blah, mega millions, was the third spot in all search categories. I thought that was interesting. Next was, believe it or not, <laughs> and people still don't know the answer to this question, but the next biggest one in fifth place on all searches is, quote, what is Bitcoin? <laughs> really? And, and <laughs> I'm still scratching my head on that one. Death and suicide was unfortunately a, a hot topic this year. So, so uh, uh, Mac Miller, the musician who died from a drug overdose, Kate Spade, yep. uh, and of course Anthony Bourdain were big in searches who came in uh, uh three, four, and five. On the entertainment front, uh, the number one movie search was Black Panther. That really surprised me. And the top museum slot, Corey, went went to Demi Lovato. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, she had a crazy year. And what do you think the most searched song was? Uh, thank You, Next, Ariana Grande. Nope. Bohemian Rhapsody, which beat Baby Shark, which came in third. Now, could you believe it all these years later that that song is still creating such interest. Now, this one blew me away. Being in the culinary industry as I am, food is always, you know, a, a big category. But 2018's top five were just, you know, about food poisoning and things like that. But unicorn cake won. Now, I don't think I know anyone. What the hell is unicorn cake? Who, me, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't think I know anyone who searched unicorn cake, but obviously a lot of people did. Romaine lettuce was a big one because of the... Uh, yeah, uh, with the E. coli. Yeah, the contamination. CBD gummies scored very well. So a lot of people are not smoking their cannabis. They are uh, chewing it up in their gummies. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Cato pancakes and Cato cheesecake did well. Uh, uh, and the number one uh, name searched online. Oh, come on. It's got to be John Taffer. <laughs> oh, I wish. Uh, uh, but Brett Kavanaugh took took the spot, uh, which makes sense. Uh, Megan uh, Markle also did really well. But the number one how-to search, what do you think that was, Corey? Uh, how to play Fortnite. It's actually sort of patriotic. How to vote. Oh, okay. And the next one is how to register to vote. So that was pretty good to see, but those are some of the bigger searches that that uh, uh, happened in this year. Other things that were interesting was taking a look at who searched the most at travel destinations. So who searched trip to blank? I'll start at number 10. The number one trip to search was Spain, trip to Spain. Oh, beautiful. Number nine, trip to New Orleans. Number eight, trip to New York. Number seven, this one surprised me, trip to Bora Bora. Uh, six, of course, 
trip to Vegas, Corey. Well, 45 million people are going to come to this city this year. That's awesome, but hey, they should just stay home. We got enough people. Uh, yeah, but we love those tourists, don't they? True, true. They bring money from other places and they leave it here. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, number five was trip to Ireland. Four, trip to Bahamas. Three, trip to Iceland. That surprised me. I mean, how many people go to Iceland? Uh, but it, it came in three. Number two was trip to Paris. You got any guess for number one? Uh, I would have gone with Vegas, but let's go with Costa Rica. No, no, no. Let's go Italy. Yep. Trip to Italy was number one. Uh, uh, so uh, not a bad place to travel. Yeah, a lot more people traveling outside the country than I would expect. Yep. You know, years ago, I used to run resorts in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains, which are very famous resorts. And and uh, when air travel started to get, you know, so cheap and so easy to fly to other countries, that's when a lot of those resorts started to disappear but you're right, Corey. Today you jump on a plane, man, and it's really easy to spend the weekend in the Bahamas if you want to. Yeah, back to work on Monday. We'll be back with Owen Wilson in a minute. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer just a few questions, navigation, moonroof, etc., and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True Cash Offer, not available in all areas. Hey, the new year is almost here, and what's your new year's resolution? If you're planning to be healthier, it all starts with a good night's rest. You know, it's changed my life. You've heard me tell my story about tossing and turning, headaches, back pains, but after my pillow, I wake up feeling great, and it's really amazing what a difference a good pillow makes. It did for me. My pillow had an amazing offer on a four-pack. It was such a rare deal. The good news is that they extended it, and it's now their very best offer ever. So go to MyPillow.com right now and click on their end-of-year special, and here's what you'll find. It's the lowest price MyPillow has ever offered for their four-pack, and it includes free shipping, but it gets better. Their 60-day money-back guarantee has been extended through March 1st. Best price ever, free shipping, extended money-back guarantee. What else do you need? Go to MyPillow.com, click on the the end-of-the-year special, and enter my promo code TAFFER, and you'll get two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows. There's nothing better than a gift of a great sleep. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the the end-of-the-year special, and use my code TAFFER to get two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows. Again, best price ever for a four-pack, free shipping, and extended money-back guarantee through March 1st. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the the end-of-the-year special, and enter my promo code TAFFER. And remember, my promo code can be used for any offer on MyPillow.com. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Okay, I want to tell everybody a story. About eight, ten months ago, I was shooting a pilot for Paramount Network, which I won't tell anybody the name. You remember that, Owen? That was fun as hell, yeah. 
and, and it had another big celebrity on it, and the show wasn't picked up. And, and I'll be honest with you, the show sort of sucked. Uh, the only great part of the show yeah. was you and I. Oh! And, and I have my friend Owen Smith with me here, who's, who's a great Thank comedian. You. And I'll tell everybody more about you in a oh, second. Wow. But every once in a while, you meet somebody you just connect with. <laughs> and we sat down. We never knew each other. Never knew each other. Yeah. Turned on the camera. Yeah. And had a great conversation. Yeah, and in about 15, 20 minutes, man, I felt like I knew you my whole I life. I know. It was like kindred spirits. I left going, man, I like John. <laughs> so, so, so Owen is sitting next to me, by the yeah. way, in, in his in Notre Dame no, shirt. No, I got to wear it, man. Yep. So, so, so you expect him to be playing football, but he's a comedian. So comedian. There's a, we'll right. talk about that in a minute. So yes. I want everybody to, to, to know your story because, okay. you know, you were in a horror movie, <laughs> wrote 90 episodes of Are We There Yet? Yes, yes. I think 16 episodes of Whitney. Yeah, 16 or 17, yeah. As a yeah. writer? Yeah, yeah, right. And it's interesting that, that you're a black guy from the Bahamas writing about a white couple from I Chicago know, and Whitney, but you nailed it. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's just interesting how yeah. relatable you become. Yeah. And, and then the things that you're working on today, but you've done a lot of great stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah. And your story is amazing to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Born in the Bahamas. So, so you were born in the Bahamas. Nassau, Bahamas. Yeah, very proud of that. Uh, One of my favorite places. The, the high forehead and the light eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> so how old were you when you came to the States? I was nine months old. It's an amazing story that I'm still kind of piecing together. But uh, my, my mom, you know, left my dad and because uh, um, he just wasn't ready to be a committed, you know, man yep. at that time. And my mom... Uh, I don't, I don't know if I was, but yeah, so so we, we went to Washington, D.C. She moved in with her sister, one of her sisters. She moved from Bahamas straight to D.C.? Yeah, to Washington, D.C., in Southeast, or we say Southeast, that's yep. how we pronounce it. Yep. So I was raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, then she got in a, she moved into an apartment complex uh, called Pembroke Apartments, which was right outside of the Washington, D.C. line. And at that time, in the 70s, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting this part, but you could still like discriminate on single moms because they didn't have dual yep. incomes. Yep. So I grew up in a neighborhood, a bunch of boys all being raised by single mothers, but I didn't realize that. You see what I'm saying? So like we, we didn't so, see a dad until, you know, like occasionally somebody's dad would come in and we'd look at him like an alien, like who's that man? You know, so was it a pretty wild group? Pretty wild group. We were all giving each other bad advice. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Like, we didn't have any reference points on like, <laughs> how to get women or anything because we were just learning it from, from one another. And it was a fun time to grow up, though. Like, one of my friends is a successful musician. Everyone was so talented. We would all, it's back in the day when you would run outside and play. And this is like, yeah. this is like what informed, like, a lot of me, me growing up in Maryland. But I still stuck out because it was an all-black neighborhood. But occasionally someone would go, where are you from? I'm like, I'm, I'm from here. No, no, I'm like, where are you from, from? And I would go, from the Bahamas. I had a lisp. Ah. I'm from the Bahamas. And they go, you, you Bahamanian man? And people would start teasing me. And it was from that teasing that I started to tease back. And I was good at it. And I became really good at it that people would uh, go, hey, man, Owen, get, hey, get him for me. And so, so, so you were what age now about? Uh, when I started teasing people back, probably about eight, seven, eight. And then, um, then so, Eddie Murphy Delirious happened at nine. So was there a day when you said to yourself, wow, I'm pretty freaking funny? My, well, my mom actually... My mom is a very um, polished, um, she reads etiquette books. She She's big on sit up straight, tuck your shirt proper. in. Proper. Very proper. But occasionally she'll, she'll, she'll snap out of that and just say something extremely real. So a lot of her stuff is always um, 
you know, right down the middle. You know, she's a great mediator. And but um, so one day I came home crying. I was like, Mom, they keep teasing me at school. And she goes, If they make fun of you, you make fun of them right back. Like just just like a quick. I was like, That's all I needed. So then I had permission to do it. So I started making fun of the kids back. But it was more like of a. And then I would start making fun of myself first, and it just kind of became my way of walking through life. And I got it. everyone felt comfortable around me. Then I would just make people laugh and. I would whisper in, in other people's ears, yo, say this about him. Like I was, <laughs> so I was very much like that. You were? I was. I was a, a sort of the group leaderish. Yeah. I was always the jokester, the yep. sarcastic. Yeah. You know, I was always back then. We used to say, "Psych him out." Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Mess with yes. his head and stuff. Yes. I was always that way. And you know, I look back <laughs> at it now, and I think to myself, those were the years we built confidence. That's it. You That's had it. the courage to say things that might insult them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You had to be creative. Yes. You had to think. Yes. You had to put yourself on thin ice a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And you learn the line early. Yeah. So now doing stand-up, I can look at a person and I can tell how far I can go. You know what I mean? I already, it's like this, I know what I can and can't talk about. Will they'll still feel a part of the show and not yeah. feel like, why did I come out? You know well, what if I mean? nobody's ever seen you, you're a freaking natural oh, thanks, man. man. <laughs> you are just a naturally Thank funny you. guy. Thank I used to be good friends with Buddy Hackett many oh, years ago. Wow, yeah. And I was on the board of Buddy's Hackett, uh, Buddy's Charity, and he and I were very close. He was naturally funny. You are naturally thank funny. You. Thank you. No, yeah. you are. It's, thanks to just, me. I need to hear that, man. It's good. Yeah. No, there's something about you that, yeah. you know, you can tell a pretty straight story in a pretty darn funny way. <laughs> no, it's I true. I enjoy doing that. Okay, yeah. so you're eight, nine years eight, old. Eight, nine years old. And you realize you're good at this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically a survival uh, mechanism, right. you know, um, it's how you make yourself relevant at the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, and then you just how you get girls to smile at yep. you. You're so crazy, you're yep. so silly, you know, they start touching you like, oh, you know. And then at nine, uh, Eddie Murphy released this comedy special on HBO called Delirious, changed the world, changed the world. And at that time, and I'm just very observant, I'm an only child, so I just would yep. always just Me watch too. people, yeah, so I wouldn't know. Like, and so I'm and I had a, a very my mom would send me, uh, I went to a, a private school. And I would stay with this babysitter until my mom got off work and she would pick us up. And uh, every now and then, I guess if my mom would go on a date, uh, <laughs> I would spend the night at the babysitter's Gotcha. So I'm spending the night. Everything lines up. And I'm spending the night on the night that Eddie Murphy's HBO Delirious comes out. This babysitter has HBO. We don't have HBO. It comes on and he comes on and he starts, you know, cursing but doing his thing. And he was, they were like crying, but they would yeah. turn the channel every time he would curse. Like, ooh, Lord, y'all. Ooh, y'all, y'all don't need to hear this. Y'all kids can't. Ooh, Lord. Maybe he stopped cussing. Let's turn back. Then he stopped cussing again, but they laughing. But I never forgot that. My aunt, who lived in D.C., had so it was a freak that you were at her house freak. that night, that, and that, that was night. on. And I asked, I go, what is, what is this? Because I related to him. Jesse was a, a man with similar skin complexion. Yep. Like, and she said, um, he, he's, he's a comedian. And, I, and I, at that moment, I, I, I was like, that's what I do. I make people laugh like that. Like, so I, I was like, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my so life. Did you feel as almost watching that as a little boy as almost as if he owned the world at it that was, moment? It was amazing. It was yeah. amazing. It was, it was just, and I think also not seeing like older male figures just walking through life, just seeing, just seeing what a, a, a man is just deciding to do. With just by life. himself with a microphone. Yeah, up there, just yeah. making people laugh. And I was like, I, did, I didn't really understand some of the jokes, but I, underst- I, I understood the feeling. And, I, and I, I, I do that. I make people laugh that's, that exact same way. I make that babysitter laugh just like that yeah. every day. So and he was like, very much about regular life, a lot of his jokes and humor. Yeah, yeah. It was just about his day. And his time, and, yeah, right? Yeah, right. and he looked at me. Can you approach it from like a childlike 
space, which is why it probably re- resonated with me as a nine-year-old. Because right. it was very inquisitive, not coming yep. from the other end of this is how things are. He was like, why is it people, you know? So, right, right. And so I, I, I told my aunt, Sissy, her name's Sicily, but we called her Aunt Sissy. I said, I, I told her, I lied. I said, I need to watch something for school. And it's on HBO. And so I need to spend a night at your house. And I, I looked up on the schedule when it came up. And so then I was able to spend a night, and I couldn't sleep. It was like Christmas morning, man. She watched it a second time. I, I sit on the couch. It comes on. That's when HBO had a, the static start, and then it would start. Then the special comes on. And then my Aunt Sissy comes out of the uh, bedroom and sits next to me on the couch, and hears all the cursing. And uh, as he's getting into it, and she, and she just turns to me, and she goes, don't tell your mother here. <laughs> and just goes back to bed. And I, was, and I absorbed it, man. And I wow. just, I remembered every joke, every bit. And so, but I, I never told anyone that I wanted to be a comedian because I didn't want anyone to, like, crush my dream. Right, I, I, yeah, I didn't grow up in the most positive environment. When people were like, yep. you can do that. I'm going to take you to... Hey, let's go to a comedy club. Right. Versus you're freaking crazy, man. Yeah, right. yeah, you're crazy. You ain't go get a job. Yeah, they ain't going to let you do that. So yep. I would just make people. I was more aware of when I was making people laugh. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm being a comedian right now. But I called it comedian. I said, like, I'm comedian right now. I didn't now know the term. With your buddies on the street, no mm-hmm. fathers, hanging out, yeah. being a little sarcastic and funny. Yeah, yeah. You still were a good student the whole time, weren't you? Because I knew. I knew that that was the way I could do everything else. You know what I mean? It was, And I'm competitive. Uh, you know, I didn't want to. And, I, and I, I, like, organically knew. Because I'm, I'm a father now, and I keep telling my wife that you're, I organically knew what would make my mom feel good. You know what I mean? So I really worked hard to get those good grades. And when I got A's, she was cool, you know what I mean? And I could push the boundaries a little bit. But if I was right. bringing home C's and D's and, you know, misbehaving, then that would just – so something in me so – Did she like your comedy when you were young and sarcastic not, and she, funny? My mom was a tough – she would not laugh. She would be like, mm. <laughs> but I know she would laugh, like, at, like after I left, but, but she would not give it to me. Every now and then. now, today, I have her howling. And her laugh, she has the most beautiful laugh. And so, but as a kid, no, nah, she just didn't feel like she could give it to me. So, so this was just really important to you. And you think about how Pryor touched you so deeply. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was uh, Murphy first. I didn't, I didn't sorry, discover Pryor right, until right. I was in my mid-20s. Right, how Eddie Murphy so touched you. And, yeah. you know, what's amazing is when you think about it as an entertainer, and I've watched yeah. a lot of your stuff, and if nobody's watched Owen, there's great videos <laughs> on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. You know, some really, really good work. Please do so, Owen Smith at YouTube. Yeah. But, but I got to tell you. As an entertainer, when you can touch someone yeah. and change their life, man, it gets no better. It's, it's no better. And that's something. And that Eddie did realize. that to you. Yeah. yeah, he did that. He did that. Yeah. Think about this. Yeah. You might be doing that for somebody else. I know. I'm, I'm more aware of that today than, you know, you know how it is. In your 20s, you're just kind of going through it, trying to find out who you are. And then in your 30s, you start going, well, why didn't I get that opportunity? I'm just as funny as that person. Or I'm, I make people laugh like... So you're still in that space. But then in the last couple of years, I've gotten to this space where, man, what I do is important, you know. And it Very can, important. especially like with all that's going on. And it, and, it, and it's something about, not to get all heady, but it's something about like right now in the last couple of years, this has been, been this big thing about meditating and yoga, basically trying to live in the present, mm-hmm. you know. And people do all these things to feel present, whether it's, you know, drugs and alcohol or that, or if they or if they try to do, you know, Zen things. Mm-hmm. And, but at a comedy club, laughter is the most present 
thing you can do. And so on a nightly basis, I think that's what we all connect on is that we're all laughing at a thought or an experience at the same time. It's homogeneous. It's homogeneous. And that's the It's like a sports team in a sense. Yeah. Yes. And that's every 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 group in the world can love that same team. There's yeah. no difference. No difference. When so and so hits a home run. It's a home run. That's we're right. all in You're there like, together. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the thing. And so there man. was a movie I saw years ago yeah. and you'd love it. it. It's called The Ghosts of Flatbush. And you can get it online. It's a documentary film, and it's a film about when the Brooklyn Dodgers were moved out of Brooklyn and how everybody lost this homogeneous connection that they had and how the whole community fell apart because Mm -hmm. that commonality disappeared. When I'm at your show and everybody's laughing, we are all laughing at the same thing. All laughing at the same thing. It's one of the most unified moments I guess we could ever have. It's fantastic. And so it's like, and then I never looked at it that way. Yeah, and as a performer, it's like I have the responsibility to decide what I want us to laugh at together. You see what I'm saying? And so that's where, like, you see, like, a lot of my peers starting to get in trouble with some things or whatever. It's like, because you never, we don't look at it that way. And then you go, oh, wow, you know. So so let's move on. It's okay. She go to Notre Dame. I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Graduated from Notre Dame. What'd you take? What were you? Finance or finance, and I uh, studied Japanese for two years. Okay, so I got okay, so This is a pretty <laughs> complex dude here. Okay, Japanese yeah. accounting yeah. and comedy. Japanese finance and, 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 and comedy. I, 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 I was doing comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So do you do Japanese jokes? Man, no. <laughs> but I, I, if I'm in a sushi restaurant, though, I will say something that will make them go, "How'd, how'd you learn that?" <laughs> You know, it's funny. It's really strange when you travel around the world and you see people who look like one thing but are another. For example, when you see somebody Japanese but they have a British accent. Yes. Right? right, You almost can't get past it for a long, long time. Moments like that are very bizarre to me. Or or you meet somebody who's Indian. Yes. But they have a Japanese Uh, accent. Japanese accent. (laughs) Yeah. Or deep, deep, like R&B voice. How you doing? You're like, yo, where you get that voice from? Yeah, yeah, I love so, that stuff. So were you, when was the first time you were on stage? First time I was on stage, I was 19 years old. It was the summer so after So you're at Notre Dame? Yeah, I'm at Notre okay. Dame, but I'm home for the summer. Okay. And uh, I had a, a government job. I, I was working at the Department of Energy for like- Summer those, job. Summer job. And uh, shout out to Wanda Jones for hooking that up. Uh, and uh, every lunch break, I would just make everybody laugh, like- and I loved it. I just loved because my mom worked for the government. And, uh, you know, in every holiday dinner, you hear how they just would always just complain about their gigs. And so I just organically, I was making Lightened it up. Laugh, and it just sounded. And this big guy named Kevin, he walked over to me one day and he had this serious face. He goes, man, you funny. And I thought he was going to like. <laughs> <laughs> then his next sentence was, I'm going to take you to a comedy club. They got this open mic night. I was like, all right. And in true DMV fashion, he goes, pick me up at my house. Like, I thought you were taking me. <laughs> so I had to go into D.C. to pick up Kevin, and then we drove to this comedy club in Greenbelt, Maryland, called the uh, Comedy Connection of Greenbelt. And out in front was a huge poster of Martin Lawrence, who's from Ooh, Maryland. of course. Another huge poster of Dave Chappelle. Who's a little intimidating on the way in you know, for I a mean, young kid. Yeah, for a young kid, 19. <laughs> and I, and I, I got there at 8 o'clock, which is what time it was supposed to start. No one was there. And I, I signed up first on the sign up list and the entire and then the show started about nine fifteen. It's a black room. And then I'm in the back nervous, man. I got the bubble guts and this is right near the end of the comedy boom where now they have to offer like a buffet to eat and they kind of paper the rooms. Okay, hold that for a yes. second. So before, are you writing your material? You're studying, you're working. I, yeah, I had um So it was a big deal to you. I, I didn't really know like 
how to approach the craft. Um, but I did write down like I had like a couple of jokes. Okay, so, so you thought you were ready? I thought I was ready, and uh, they were pretty obs- pretty observational jokes uh, about the Power Rangers beginning and why the, like the Black Power Rangers move was a dance move. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I expounded on like if I got into a fight with a real guy and I was there for you know, I, I, so I was like, okay, I was pretty happy with that. And I can't remember what else I did, but. He didn't call my name. So I sat there the whole night through, oh, no, okay. through, through okay. all these comedians, and I didn't get called. And so um, I was upset. The, the competitive nature of me kicked in, and I, I went home, and I came back the following week, and I signed my name up all over the page, like on three different. He, didn't, he doesn't call my name again. Wow. Uh, shout out to Chris Paul. His name's Chris Paul. And uh, so I, I got the courage to go up to him. Uh, after the, after the uh, sorry about this. Yeah, I got the courage to go up to him after the, uh, at the end of that show. And I said, hey, man. Uh, and I didn't know how this worked. I didn't know. And he was in, everyone was an intimidating figure to me at that point. And I go, hey, man, uh, I've been coming here the last two times, and I signed up, and I, you didn't call my name. He goes, what's your name? I go, oh, and he goes, oh, I just didn't know you. Come back next week. It was that simple. It was like my first lesson in show business. Like, That's all it took. So you know. That's right. Come back to this next day, week. same thing. To this day. To this, come back next week. Sign up. And he calls me up. For, I'm the first comic he calls up because, again, he doesn't know me, so you go up in the first slot in right. case this guy's no good. And I do my act, and I was talking so fast. And the audience, I just remember them looking up at me like this. And, like, they would laugh a few times. <laughs> but I didn't bomb. I didn't get booed or anything. They were just like, and then when I say goodnight, they were like, all right, all right. And when I got off stage, all these comedians, and it's, a, it's something that they do in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. It's called the DMV. When you come off stage, all the other comedians applaud you. Like, they come over and they say, good job. That's class. It's almost like teammates on the bench. Like, we all know we're about to go. I never experienced that anywhere else in any other comedy community. That's cool. So, But coming off stage the first time experiencing that, I was like, I'm home. Like, this is amazing. And they were all giving me pointers. You were funny. First thing, slow down. Ooh, this joke is good. You can expand on that. And it was all black men telling me this. So it goes back to, yep. you know, just to like, oh, I was like, oh, this is great. And so because the only time I would have interactions with other black dudes was on the basketball court in some sporting capacity. And the only time in, in, in my area, the only time they would speak to you is after you did a good play. Like if you dunked or something, they'd be like, hey, man, who you play for? But the whole time they wouldn't say anything to you. Okay, I got so, a question. Yeah. So you finish the show. Finish the show. You get your high fives from all the guys. Yeah, yeah. You get great words of encouragement. Yeah. You feel that you're on to something. Let me tell you what happened. You walk out of the comedy club. Mm-hmm. You get in your car. Yeah. And what did you do when you got in that I car? I was like, man, I was crazy. I, did I. I was like screaming. You like, freaked. Ah! Yeah, it was great. I've had those moments yeah. too. So, uh, a great reflective moment alone. Yeah. yeah. Was that one of the greatest rushes of your life? Ever. Because it was something that, you know, and that's the power of the mind, I guess. It was something that I, I said I was going to do at nine. And at 19... A guy comes over to me and says, "You're you belong in a comedy club." I'm like, "Wow, I've been putting that out for ten years." I'm one of them. Wow, of I'm them. in. Yes, yes. And this one guy, shout out to Mike Brooks. So at, as at open mic nights, they they put the more seasoned comedians at the end, and one of the more seasoned comedians goes up is a guy I went to school with in the eighth grade. Back to that group. Back to that group. When I go to him, I go, "Hey man, we went to Francis Key. He was like, "What's up, young?" And so he showed me around the comedy scene that summer. So that summer, my goal was to get paid. 
telling jokes. Right. Because I believe if you got paid, you were professional. So you could make people laugh. Now the issue is can you make money making people yeah. laugh? Yeah. So I had to, we were doing all these rooms called like cabarets. They were basically yep. rooms that weren't set up for comedy. Yep. And a comedy show would break out and people would be eating their crab legs and they'd have to cream their neck over and like look yep. at you. And sometimes they laugh. But you're always competing with food or yep. whatever. And waitresses are running back and forth all and it's that. really disrupted. No lighting is poor. Oh, just it's like just the most unfriendly comedy environment you could have. Unfriendly. Friendly and so ten distractions going on oh, while you're up there. Oh yeah, and you. So if you got one laugh, you were like, okay, it might be something. There. <laughs> they were not expecting this at all, and so, but that made me a stronger performer. And by the end of the summer, uh, shout out to this guy named Pops. He uh, he gave me a crumpled up twenty five dollars in my hand. Boom. Wow. And you didn't expect it. No. And I was like, oh, I'm professional. I'm paid. So then I went back to school sophomore year. My confidence on 10, because I was like, if I can make people in D.C. laugh, South and Indiana, man. Yeah, that should be a piece of cake, man. Right. Yeah, I was right. all like, you know, and so I entered the uh, talent show, and I did stand-up. And now I have video of that, and I got a standing ovation at the end. I broke, like, three mics whatever, but I I was home, you know, and I became the – I would I would do comedy shows on campus, and I ended up hosting, like, all these things. Then, in the 10,000 hours of it all, a comedy club opens in South Bend, the Funny Bone. So I go to summer school that summer to work that Funny Bone, and I become the doorman, and I just beg the owner to let me go on stage, and then I go on stage, and he he makes me the house MC. Wow. So my junior year, I'm performing Tuesday through Sunday every week as the house MC. I would seat you, then I would get on stage and tell my jokes, and then I w- and I would also go to school. And so Did you have to I, run in the back and cook the burger in the middle of the set <laughs> as well? I could have. I, I got that experience, but uh, I didn't. I did. And that was how I learned. I would see so many different yeah. ways of doing the craft come through all these national headliners. You know, it's interesting that you yeah. say craft. Oh, yeah. Now, you're a naturally funny guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a pretty good TV host. Yes. And, and, you know, I think that being a television host is about 20, 30% talent, mm-hmm. 70% craft. Yeah. How would you define comedy? Wow, I would say, man, I would say this. In a raw comedy club when there are no cameras on you, you can just be organically funny and survive. But if you're going to shoot a special or do something for television, you do need to get your, we call it like technicals, you need to get your your technique up, your craft. And so I would say it's almost 50-50, man. But you, you can't. You can't make it be over technical to where people are like, this feels. Right. You, now you, you start to go into humorous because you're just so. You, you, it has to still come out organically. But like when I watch the greats, they know what they're doing, man. Like it's a craft. They, yeah, it's a craft. It takes a lot of experience. So, so many when you're in college now, you're doing how many shows a year? I know, right? I never, I never looked at it like that. Every week. So in college, whatever what was that September through December, every week, pretty much, and then. So you're doing 50, 60, 80, 90 shows. You're, oh, more than that. You're getting your chops, getting man. Getting my chops, yeah, yeah. You're learning what's working. You, you learn. throw, you're discarding material. You're creating new material. Yes. You're yeah. getting good. Getting good. Yeah, and I learned how to perform in D.C. Because, again, when people aren't paying attention to comedy, you just you learn how to, like, use your body and do all these things and be you physical. get their attention. Yeah, and then, but in South Bend, because the co- the, the audience was mainly, I would say, like a blue-collar working class uh crowd who did not share the same reference points that I, I had I had to learn how to expand my material and, and talk about other things and read the right. paper and do things of that nature and 
and I would learn, and I learned more about the human condition through listening to other comedians. Like I know more about different cultures and ethnicities through because comics were telling their story. Right. So when I'm just sitting around, it's always personal. Isn't it's it? so personal, right. and I would just know all these things. And my wife would be like, "How do you know that?" And I was like, "Comedy." This one comedian used to talk yeah. about it, and, and then I would. You know what I find and, interesting? Yeah. When I ran a troubadour many years ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, I knew the uh, managers of the comedy store. Uh-huh. And they said to me, John, you are so funny. Come do five, seven minutes at the comedy <laughs> wow. store. Now, I was a musician at the time, so okay. I played the drums, and I used to play at the oh, Troubadour and the Roxy yeah. and stuff. But I could hide behind my drum set when I was on stage, yeah. if you know what I mean. So now I'm standing on stage at the comedy store mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on Sunset Boulevard with a microphone and a spotlight. Wow. And uh, uh, I did okay for five minutes, but I got to tell you, it was the most terrifying five minutes ah, of my life. I could do spot. reality TV all day long, and I'm cool and comfortable uh, in that. Yeah. And, but I got to tell you, standing there just by yourself, it's like you're naked. Can I tell you something? Yeah. You you telling me you're a drummer, That I, I get it now. The fact that you're a drummer, like you walk through life with this rhythm that makes people like, who's that guy? Like Michael huh. Chiklis is also a drummer. Yeah. And I feel like you, you just have this natural sense of timing and rhythm and like in everything you do that you may not even know. But that's what it is, man. It's, wow. it's that drumming. You, you know why I think I'm successful? Why? I own the only patent ever issued by the federal government for the management of music to achieve a desired ambiance in a hospitality property. I'm a freaking nutcase. Wow. I took <laughs> 70,000 songs and wow. paid people to put them in energy levels, yeah. music types, Amazing. instrumentation categories. Yeah. And I learned the science in a nightclub of beats per minute. Whoa. And if I go too fast, I burn you out, you leave early. If yeah. I go too slow, I bore you, you leave early. Right. And there's this equation and this mentality, if you will, yeah. to the human condition and driving energy and giving a little break and driving energy and giving a break. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think what you're saying is really astute. I yeah. think those things have helped me yeah. on camera with timing and stuff. Definitely. That and you know who else is successful? Uh, magicians. Oh, magicians yeah. make amazing hosts, and I would say drum- or just amazing artists because they they aren't pressured for the laugh. They know, you know, the prestige. They know they have. We also to appreciate time. We don't yeah. have to hurry. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. When you were a rookie, you were inclined to hurry up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm gonna get them, and da, 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 yep. you know how to speed it up. Like, that's so okay, is, man. Yeah. you leave college. Yes, you got your degrees. Yeah, my degree. Yeah, speaking a little Japanese. A little bit. A little bit. Ready for a little finance work? No. But no. you got your comedy I got chops. Degree for moms. Here you go. But you you got your comedy chops. Got my comedy chops. I'm ready. So, how were you scared about launching your career then? Were you Not confident? Then. Not at all. I, w- I had that youthful, blind confidence. Uh, I, it was just something that I knew that this was going to happen. And uh, and so, I, yeah. So year one, did you make a living? Yeah, I I, I wrote a TV pilot about it. Uh, it I, I worked. For 11 months as a financial planner, which is fancy talk for life insurance yeah. agent. Yeah. They hired me to sell life insurance to 21-year-old minorities. who That's the last group that's thinking of buying life right. insurance. So I was kicked out of pretty much every home <laughs> in Chicago. And uh, I wasn't really great at it because I didn't really fully believe in how they had us do it. Like, I believed in... Everything I believed in, I didn't make a commission off of. The thing I made a commission off of, I was like, hey, you don't really Right, didn't excite you. Yeah, it didn't excite me. So um, I was doing that in comedy at night. And so I would be 
on the road doing appointments and I and I learned how to be I could always all my appointments would keep because I would be funny and charming on the phone and they so you're they, cold calling I was cold calling yeah. man and I was like hey uh, which time works best for you 11 and 1 as, as opposed to and so yep. I would always get meetings and people would always so I had a great retention rate for that but um, I wasn't really converting in sales because it was also like I don't really this isn't my life and the comedy clubs were cool because they would literally let me sleep in the back. And I, to this day, if you call my name, I could wake up and I would go right on stage and you face, cre- sleep creatures <laughs> and hey, what's up? Yeah. And just and, and do my show. And so I heard comedians talking about how they were collecting. They were living off of unemployment. And I was like, you could do that? They were like, yeah, man, I live off unemployment and then I do the thing. So I went and I went back to my job and quit that day. And back then they had unemployment offices, and I went to the unemployment office. And I go, yeah, I like to start collecting unemployment. And the guy goes, uh, were you fired or were you, um, or did you did you quit? And I was astute enough to go, what's the difference? He goes, well, if you if you quit, you're not eligible for unemployment. And I was like, I was laid off because <laughs> that was like a big thing. Like, and he goes, uh, we have ways of finding out. I go, I'll be right back. And I literally went back to my yeah, ex-job. they verify with the employer. I went I went back to my ex-job and I asked my employer. Hey man, could you fire me so I can collect unemployment insurance? And he thought that was the craziest request that he actually did it. But I never collected a, a day of unemployment because I ended up temping. I would do temp work because I could type, and I would do temp work. And so you would really do things that you had no enjoyment doing, no enjoyment doing, just to feed your ability to do your comedy. Yeah, because I knew it would lead to, and so I'm temping. But you realize the entrepreneurial spirit that is. I always had that. Yeah. Always had that. Yeah, I sold candy in high school. I used to wash. Before that, I would wash and wax cars in the neighborhood to make some bucks. So you're a disciplined guy. You've always been. Yeah. Well, yeah. My wife says I, I, I can go all in, uh, you know, and I'm very detailed oriented. Like, I love to cook and things of that nature. You know, if I start something, I want to finish it and make it make it right, you know. Uh, so you, so now college is over. You, college you're touring. Over. You're on the road. You're doing comedy. Road comic, yeah, yeah. Performing 50, 48 weeks a year. Wow. Yeah. You're making a decent living. Making a great, yeah, great living. I, yep. And then I discovered colleges and fell into commercials, started yep. acting. Now, you know, young comics don't make a lot of money every night, but you work a lot of nights. Yeah. So you can yeah. wind up making a lot of living, and then as you get better, your fee per night goes yeah. up. Yeah. And yeah. it starts to work really well. But in the beginning, it's a heck of a grind. It's I mean, a heck of a you're just in places that that you'd probably never want to go back to yeah, if you didn't have yeah, to. Yeah, it's a young man's game. You yeah. know, I didn't really need much. And, um, yeah, but I've been to every state except Montana. So yeah. now uh, you're a young comedian. Do you have an agent yet? No. no. So now you gotta, you're got you struggling, and did mm-hmm. you ever think of yourself as being an actor? No. no. So you were just a stand-up guy. You were happy being a stand-up guy. And then how did When a Stranger Calls happen? <laughs> well, so quick, short, long story short, I'm at Zany's Comedy Club. Shout out to Zany's yep. in downtown Chicago. And uh, can I tell this story real quick? Sure. Just for young comics watching this, uh, I so so in Chicago at that time there were two comedy clubs. Oh, it was, it was Zany's was the the mainstream comedy mm-hmm. club, and then there were like there was a black comedy club called All Jokes Aside. I was able to work both. That was Bob Zany's, right? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't know what the first name. It's just anyway. called Zany's. Okay. Yeah. So um, there was a, a booker named Bert Haas. And, uh, and he would let you showcase. Uh, you had to go ask him for a showcase date. And I said, hey, Bert, I'd like to showcase for your club. He goes, all right, you do seven minutes clean. And um, I have a spot for you in July. Now, mind you, it was October when I asked him for a showcase date. And he goes, uh, July. And so, But I knew he stood outside every Tuesday. So every Tuesday, I would find a way to make myself 
available, just show up and say, hey, Bert, how you doing? He would always just go, July. <laughs> wow. Every Tuesday until, hey, Bert, July. Like every Tuesday. <laughs> Did he ever break down? Never broke, but I never didn't show. Like, I showed wow. every Tuesday. And so then uh, when it was my time to do it, I did it, and I got passed into that club. So I would hear other comedians go, man, forget that club. They this, they that. But I was like, dude, he, I, I went every Tuesday you for 10 months. Yeah. You paid your dues. And so, you really put a lot of ego aside in those days, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And I still am reminded. I think that's thanks to my mom. You're a humble, pretty humble dude. Yeah, and I mean, that could be to my detriment, too, because sometimes I do need to speak up <laughs> and be like, I, do you know my resume? But I'm just like, right. you know, but uh, they, um, so yeah, I was doing that. So what was the question I was answering? So, so oh, how, how oh, did oh. that happen? Was so that a I'm phone call? No, I'm at Zany's and uh, and um, Star searched uh, the, the the guy who won the And model. McMahon. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who won, he was the model. He just, he wanted to do comedy. So he comes into the comedy club and Bert Ha says, "Hey man, um, I gotta bump your spot, which means you're not you're not yep, going up. You're so out. We're gonna have this the Star Search winner perform. This guy walks in with an entourage of people. And I'm sitting in the back of the club, like, man, what is? Because I'm upset. I'm not gonna go up. Yep. They introduce this guy. He is amazing looking. Not funny. Couldn't buy a laugh. Like it was just really weird. And Bert panicked. Where's Owen? Where's Owen? Where's Owen? You go up next. <laughs> so." I got to go up right after him. Get the room back for and me. Sh- like, I killed. And when I got off stage in Chicago, this agent named Nancy Apt goes, "Do you have? Who, who are you? Do you have representation? And gives me her card. So that Hollywood story, it happened to me in Chicago. I wow. get her card. I go back to the other comics. They go, y'all heard of this? They go, that's the top agency in Chicago. You should. So I, I didn't want to, you know, just go there unprepared. So I took a, a acting class. And the only one I could get in at that time immediately was a commercial acting class at, um, I forget the name of it, it'll come to me. Uh, it was on La Brea and... Um, Lee Strasberg? No, 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 it wasn't. No, it was, yeah. it was a commercial gotcha. acting. And they were great, though. But in that class, you, they give everyone the same script, and you see everyone perform. And these are people who are like, they are, everyone tells their story, like, yeah, I've been wanting to act, I've, been, I've studied here, I've studied there. Like, people with resumes. But, but my agent says I should do commercials as well. Like, just people who... Had great posture and just did all the the voice exercise, all that stuff. And, Don't uh, you hate some of those people? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just between just between little, you and I, little pretentious, I'm that, like, that yeah. little Hollywood style. Yeah. I mean, and you know, and that's and, and they they've they've taken elocution class. Like they know all this stuff. And Many so, years ago, I had a roommate and I lived in Hollywood, and, yeah. and this guy tried out for the role Popeye, the movie Popeye. Oh wow, wow! And for three freaking weeks, this guy lived in my apartment, and he was Popeye. Wow. <laughs> And I was ready to rip his freaking eyes out. I bought a neon sign and I put it over my fireplace that said, no actors allowed. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and I'll watch all these trained people perform these scripts. And I, and I list something just came over and I go, that's it. I could do this. And so I I was kind of a natural in that space and my confidence. I felt confident. Like, immediately I booked a national commercial. You're not worried about your own material. You're reading their words. Yeah. They're setting up the timing. If you screw it up, you can do it again. Yeah. Scripted work is pretty darn easy pretty, compared yeah. to live work. Yeah. I feel that way about my show. Yeah. 
I got to write my own words in real time. Do what I do. Hard, go where I'm going. Man. I produce it in real time. Yeah. Handle the story in real time. Yeah. None of it is pre-produced. Amazing. So, so, so I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very stressful situation. It was refreshing because it was and it was a different way. It was like it was all about making a choice. So and I so I would just go on instinct. How did this piece hit me? I feel like it should be delivered this way, and then they would help me with the technicals of yep. it. So I, I organically would always kind of be in the right space. So I booked a commercial, national. Back then they paid well, like 50 grand. So was the commercial yeah. before the, the movie, before When a Stranger yeah, Calls? Yeah, but, but the director of When a Stranger Calls directed one of the commercials I did for Bingo. a local cell phone company. And it was so how long? one of the experiences that you and I had on the pilot. Like, we really had a ball. I com- completely forgot about it. How long did it take you from the minute you had that copy of that commercial yeah. to the time your mother saw it? Oh, she saw it immediately. Yeah, I bet. She saw it. And, I, and, she, and it was like, you know, she was starting to come around. You know who helped me? Bernie Mac helped me with my mom. Sad story. Yeah, R.I.P. Bernie. Because yep. my mom came out to visit and Bernie Mac used to, he wanted to be Bob Hope. A lot of people don't know that. So he had a, a room called Miltroneers. It was in a tiny club uh, in, in downtown Chicago. And every Tuesday he would say, get your yucks for five bucks, you know. Wow. And it would always be packed. Always be packed. He was would, a great on a guy. small stage like the size of this studio, it would be Bernie, a full band. He would have the macaroni dancers. <laughs> and Bernie would come out and do 45 minutes of new material every Tuesday written by him and Ali Leroy. And then Bernie he would was bring a special up, talent. Special. And he would bring up two comedians and two singers. And I became one of his favorite uh Comic me, Dion Cole, wow. uh, a, a, a bunch of cats, Corey Holcomb, like a bunch of like amazing comedians from the Chicago from that time in, in Chicago. It was almost like a second city of its own in a sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And and then he and so my mom came to one of those shows, and afterwards Bernie used, would always talk to his band to give them like tips and, and notes and critiques on performance and talk yep. to his dancers. He was a, a consummate professional, and. He spent, he, instead of doing that, he spent that time talking to my mom. He talked to my mom for over an hour. And after that, she went from being hesitant to becoming my biggest supporter. Wow. Like, she understood, and she would, are you making your calls? Are you doing your thing? And it was it was a great, it was a, I'm forever grateful to Bernie for doing that. Okay, so now we're, we're sitting at about uh, 2011. And you're brought on board as a writer. Yeah. For Are We There Yet? And I was relate Ali Leroy. Same. It's the guy who, he saw me at a comic club, bought me to Bernie Mac's room. Ali Leroy then wrote on Everybody Hates Chris, bought me on there, and I started doing punch-up writing there. And that's where I got my, I would say, my master's degree. So it's punch-up writing, taking a script and adding so, some pops to it? Yeah. In essence? But it's really like, but it was it was almost not, they didn't bring me in for that. My job was to read Chris Rock's off-camera voiceover for the actors to have timing because it was a voiceover show. So I'm like, gotcha. my mother said, da, 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 gotcha. I would do that. And I, but it was the perfect acting school because in acting class, it's always in a protected environment, a safe environment. You know, everyone is there learning. But on set is a different beast. There are people, there's so much stuff going on, and you still have to find this moment right. while, the, while the, the, the lightened dude is wrapping yep. up a cord and they yep. adjusting stuff and people on calls. Like you can see all these movements. So but you still got to keep your shit together. Yeah, and, and to be able to and, to, and to learn how other actors approach their craft, so to see how a great, a treasure uh, like uh, Tashina Arnold would approach mm. her craft. This was Terry Crews' like, first big show. So to see how he approached his craft like a football player, he would just – and so they had two different techniques. And uh, it was just fun. And so what I did 
is I offer it just wasn't in my job description, but I offered myself to run lines with whoever wanted to run lines. And so that was how um, I got to know all these people and I would run lines. So they would have uh, because when you're on set, it's all about timing. Yep. And because we were doing a single camera show, we didn't want to lose light. So I thought if I could run lines, then when you're on set, you'll nail it in the first or second take. You won't have to find it. All right. And so I would do that with guest stars. So I saw you have a picture of Whoopi. I have a picture with Whoopi because she did the show. Whoopi's my buddy. Yes. And so when we would do that, I would also find jokes, you know, and I, I, I would hear how you would deliver it and, and how everyone speaks and what words can come out your mouth a certain way. And I would just write it down. And one day. So the master of inflection. Yes. Sort yes. Of. Yeah. Right. And so right. one day, Ali Leroy, the showrunner and co-creator, asked me, hey, man, this scene's not working. Do you have anything? I was like, do I? And I had like a list of jokes. And he, and he laughs with his body and he would read it and he started laughing. He threw it in. They reset. Tashina did the take with my joke. The whole crew laughed. And then that's the day Chris Rock showed up. He was like, forget that. Say this. So he and I battled, but I won the little the little battle. And then they retained you as a writer. They were, well, they retained me as a punch-up guy. So if ever I had a suggestion, I had free reign to go, hey, maybe this, maybe this. And 90% right. of the times again. No, no such thing as a bad idea, just a bad choice. Just, just keep coming. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. That's right. And that's when I learned, like, and coming from comedy, if he was like, no, it didn't affect me, I was like, okay, I'll just think of something else. And we had a great working relationship, and they got to the place where he would let me, like, rewrite scenes, but I didn't know that that, that was a big deal. I was just trying to service the project, you know what I mean? How many people have you met in life mm -hmm. that in those moments of people saying i don't like your idea yeah this isn't working you're missing the mark yeah uh, uh this isn't what i had hoped it would be yeah how many people have you seen in our business because i know my answer to this i'm curious to hear yours yeah. have you seen blow those moments where the ego takes over oh, man. Oh, and, man. and they screw up their jobs they storm out yeah. I mean, how often do you see that way, way more than i could could count and it, it always surprised me and i would always go is it because I'm a comedian and comedy comedians are always harsh on one another that that it's like you, that doesn't affect me? But if you're if you're a writer and all you've wanted to be is a writer, I've seen writers really just lose their stuff and be like, man, what? man oh. forget, and like like all day talking about that guy, like who does he? And I'm like, it's just it was just a no, man. Just just think of something right. else. Like that joke but is my great. Point but is, yeah, but yeah. My point is your desire for greatness, yeah, is bigger than your ego. Yeah, I never looked at it that way. It's true. Yeah. And if your ego is bigger than your desire to greatness, you're screwed. You're screwed. You're screwed. And, and you those are the people the who blow road. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. The ego of this moment That's real. cost me a gig for the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in show business, we see this stuff all the time. All the time. And I just I just know, you know how humble, you know, yeah. and what a good guy you are. The other lesson that I learned out of this is it doesn't matter what business you're in. You know, I've been yeah. in nightclub barbers for 35 years. Wow. When you're in a business 35 years, all your friends are now presidents of all the companies. That's yeah, true. Right? Yeah. And as we get older now, our yeah. friends are executive producers so and true. network executives. Yeah. and network. So we're coming up with everybody yes. in, uh, on that whole food chain, so yeah. to speak. Relationships are key. So key. So key. And, and you know, the, the friend from five years ago calls you today, Owen, I got a project. That was yeah. So you've done an incredible job of putting greatness ahead of ego. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You've done a great job in discipline, buddy. Really impressive. Thanks. But, you know, I think that, that uh, what's uh, really fantastic about you is your desire to, to uh, uh, achieve yeah. and to yeah. satisfy someone else. Yeah. 
So your comedy show isn't about you. It's really uh, about your audience. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. What about those comedians that you meet sometimes and it's just so about them? I, I, honestly, and it's so hard for me to – having a son helps with exercising patience and it helps <laughs> me realize, okay, this guy's in it early 20s and I, I kind of remember feeling that way but man like it, it, there have been certain cert- situations when like one time I was in a room with Jerry Seinfeld and um, funny story I saw him on HBO and and Bob Costas asked him about young comedians he was like hey, you, know, you know my generation we studied young comedians they, they, don't, they don't study and he did like this double blink and this yeah. you agree type. and it made me so upset because that's all I did was study. study. And I have everyone's stuff. And when I was on the road, I would just listen to everyone's stuff. And, like, Bill Hicks taught me. I, he was the first guy I heard make abortion funny, you know. And Franklin Ajay, he was the first black guy I knew not be grow up poor. He made him. He talked about going to law school and, you know, Red Fox for the timing. Like, I, mm. I knew everybody. I listened to all of his heroes. Um uh, uh, Robert Klein and, and 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 just great timing. So yeah, and so for him to say that, I just didn't feel like it was fair. So when I met him for the first time, all I, all I uh, Jimmy Brogan uh, took me in there. Jimmy Brogan is a Notre Dame alum, yeah. super funny cat, and uh, I call him the Kaiser Sose because in this room, whenever he spoke, everyone listened to Brogan, and I still tease him about that. And so he brought me in. He goes, "Hey Jerry, this is Owen." He goes, hey, nice to meet you. I go, hey, man, I got, I got a bone to pick with you, man. You, I saw you on HBO say comedians, young comedians don't study. I was like, you can't say that, man, because I study. And when you say stuff like that, you have a larger platform. More people right. are going to listen to you. And you just, I mean, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, yeah, have a seat. You want a cigar? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I sit down and I look, Jay Leno sitting right here. <laughs> like, wow. I just, I only saw him. It was Leno, it was Kevin Nealon, it was like all these comedy heavyweights. Um, Sitting in this room, and Jay with his knee was shaking. He was saying, "Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, man. You got to say what you got to say." And I was like, "I, I just, you know." But there was another young comedian in there, and he wouldn't shut up. I'm like, "You have nothing to add to this experience right now." Like, problem is, he thinks he does. He was that's the problem. Yeah, and I was just like, I wanted to be like, "Hey, man, shh, just listen." Like they were talking about luxury tax problems and talking about their journey and. And everyone is swapping stories, and that—that's the room you want to just be in and listen and just yeah. hear and absorb. And I had the chance to do the Steve Harvey show a few weeks ago. Oh wow! And talk about a special dude. I mean, yeah. Steve Harvey is just, uh, and he does his own warm up before mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. So before you go out in the show, he goes out there probably a forty-minute warm up too. I mean, he's Amazing. working hard. He owns them. They're rolling in the aisles. Then you yeah. come up and you do the show with him. And during a commercial break, we were talking about how wonderful life is yeah. when you're past what you need. And you're into what you want. Oh, man. I can't wait to get there. <laughs> and those are the words that he said. And it was really, really powerful. He's, he, too, is, is somebody who's had, had a big, big influence on yeah. me. Okay. So Whitney's a pretty big hit. You yeah. come in, you do an episode or two of Blackish. Mm-hmm. No, I wrote, I wrote season four. I wrote on season four oh, of Blackish. Okay. The whole season. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So you wrote on Blackish, which I yeah. think is a very funny show. Yeah, myself. it's great. And uh, uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> I uh, now I'm in this space where when my wife was pregnant, I created a TV show. Uh, it's called Dudes, and it's just uh, I wanted. I told my wife, and and when I was pitching it around town, the whole thing is in a, in relationships there are three sides to every story: his side, her side, and the truth. And I feel like today, 
her side is well documented. Yep. From Sex in the City to Insecure to Girls to Girlfriends, you pick a show. So, oh, and what about our side? So I wanted to do a show <laughs> about our side. And um, and so I wrote this very funny show, and it, it went around. Anyone who reads the pilot, because I just wrote the pilot, uh, anyone who reads it, they go, why isn't this show on the air? And so... Uh, Malcolm Lee signed on to direct, and Ooh. Warner Brothers uh, loves it, and they um, became the production the the production company. Uh, no, they became the studio attached, and LeBron James's company, Spring Hill, became the production company. So, so you got so it done. We're, we're, I got it. You done. sold I got, it. I got sold it. I did sell. So that was the first show I sold, and so now we're trying to find a home, find a network home, yep. because it's it's one of those things like where. I've always been someone who's been a little early. Like in 2014, I'm the first guy to shoot a comedy special entirely on iPhones. I went out, I bought 10 iPhones, I shot the special on the iPhones, and then I returned the iPhones and got my money back. That's what my wife would do. Yes, she bought right. Recorded it. Yeah, got seventeen grand <laughs> back. And uh, and I I thought I go this is disruptive. This is funny. You know, and I and I organic, said, I, organic, right. But the industry, the buyers weren't ready to, you know, so I wasn't able to sell it in the way I wanted to sell it. But the the best side of that is those jokes, like only a few thousand people have seen it. So now I'm able to repurpose those jokes for other things. Oh, and that's so, you great. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and jokes are never finished. You just make them better. And they evolve. Evolve. So now with I'm doing this show called Laugh Mob Laugh Tracks, and some of the, where you, it, it, it's a brilliant idea. It's I want to release an entire album like this where you you perform, but the uh, the jokes are reenacted, and so it's a very specific wow. type of storytelling. It's basically, so almost like a crime drama reenacted yes, show. Funny. So the comedian is narrating it. Yes. As, that it's could be hysterical. People. Yes, and so I, I, I a whole new sitcom whole format new, in it, essence. It could be. Yeah. Yes, and so I did one, and it it really connected with people. It had people cracking up, and so. I'm I like, love it. Yeah, so I'm doing more of that stuff and uh, and, Being uh, and developing that show. And then I, I've been pitching movies and more TV shows. Like I'm in this space now where I just want to tell like more stories. Uh, and and my wife and I like we're revisiting the the stand up aspect of it all to see if this like if it's like if I could take one more swing because I I I landed a role as an actor on Sebastian's pilot the mm-hmm. the yep. comedian Sebastian Maniscalco who's having tremendous success, He's on a role. success touring but our pilot didn't get picked up so this pilot season I'm excited because I I have a great agency so I'm I'm gonna be auditioning for you know to be on other people's shows but I'd like to ideally be able to sell the shows that I'm writing and then star in one of those vehicles as well, you know? So well, I'll tell you right now, and there's a lot of people listening to us right now. I'd love to have you on Bar oh, Rescue. I think that'd man, be fun. I'd love to do it. I'd have, love to come do, do recon with me for an episode. <laughs> I think that'd be a blast. I would be honored. I'd man. love to do it with you. We'll make that happen. All right. right. Thanks, John. So, you know, uh, 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 I love you, man. You know that. Yeah, I know, man. Yeah, same. <laughs> I just think that, that, that there's something really special about you, man. Thanks, man. You know, that you're, you're always moving to the next thing. Yeah. To the yeah. next level, oh, yeah. to the next project. Yeah. You're the epitome of human growth in a lot of ways and i think what's made you success is your humility mm-hmm. your discipline a lot of young comics didn't study but yeah. you did yeah oh yeah the fact that you built such great relationships yeah 
And, you know, I'm an example. I've only spent a few hours with you in my life, but I'd call you in a heartbeat to do a project. That'd be great. No, just because yeah. of the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, we all need to learn from this. It does take discipline. Mm-hmm. It takes hundreds of hours and efforts. And Owen always did something. You always showed up. Always. Yeah. You showed up for those 50, 60 college dates every year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You showed up at Zany's Tuesday after Tuesday after Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you always showed up. Yeah. Because Owen has no problem investing in Owen. No. I've, that's the only, that's that's my vice. I uh, I don't gamble. I don't do any of that stuff. But I will, like, invest in myself. And, uh, you know, I keep doing it. It's in my blood. But and aren't I, you, in the end, your greatest asset? Yes. Yeah. I, don't, so yeah. I often ask people this question. Why would I invest in someone else before myself? I know. I was one of the first guys. When I lived in Chicago, one of my good friends to this day, his name is Sakaya Sandifer. Shout out to Sakaya. He was doing um, graphic design for comedians. He was making comedians business cards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would look at him, and I, I was the first guy in Chicago to get a all color card like mm, four color very cool very innovative and had my picture on it with my with my number big and, investment yeah and people <laughs> to this day still have my card on their refrigerator uh, you know what i mean that number doesn't work anymore but it, yeah. and he i would have him design my posters and my one sheets once i found out about like the business side the marketing aspect of it and we won an award for best <laughs> for best that's yeah. funny you know but it's like uh one of those things that I do pride myself in, like if you go on YouTube right now, I just um, put together a thing called Get to Know Owen Smith in Seven Jokes. It's just a fun... And that's on YouTube now? It's on YouTube right now. So just go YouTube fun, Owen Smith? Yeah, Get to Know Owen Smith in Seven Jokes, and it'll come up on YouTube. Oh, I'm going to go do that soon. And it's, it's a fun little seven seven bits over like the course of my career that... um. You know, it's a, my appearance on Conan, my appearance on, on, on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert... Um, some some clips from my iPhone special, yeah. uh, and some uh, and and uh, a, a clip from the Laugh Mob laughing. But it it just it moves and it's like I'm like oh man it's a fun thing and it also I see myself at different weights. <laughs> oh I gotta work out I gotta oh. start eating better. <laughs> and uh, but it's it's inspiring me to to keep you know creating because the one thing about this craft acting stand up writing the more you do it the better you become but you just have to be willing to show up and keep doing it you know and you got to take the nose man it's so many nose (laughs) but you know in our businesses there's probably 50 60 nose to every yes every yes so So, you know everybody listening should remember this wasn't easy for you man oh man this is a labor of love Mm. and uh we all have to pay the price to get where we're going yeah humility relationships discipline and homework speaking of humility one time i was writing on a show and and the the main person they they were not they didn't have humility and i it made me very sad because i was like you could be great right um but uh yeah well the problem with the lack of humility is they take it away from you yeah yeah. You know, they're yeah. not gracious by nature. Yeah. You know, it always has to focus upon them and, and it's stuff. it's come from something else, but it's like right here, right here in this moment, man, if you had a little humility, you would be, your show Absolutely. wouldn't get canceled. Like, I, right. I was like, I know your show's going to get canceled. And so, yeah, well, there you go. Who wants to work with somebody like that? I know. There's a lot of great talent out there. Nobody says, screw that. I'm not going down that road again. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to work with them. That's true. That's true. Okay, when we met mm-hmm. six, eight months ago, we did a pilot together. Yes. And we were sitting together. Yeah. And in that pilot, you told me a story. 
I'm going to make you tell the story again because I okay. love it so much. But I have an end to your end oh, to you the do? story. Yes, okay, okay. that I don't think you know. I don't know this. Okay, so when Owen goes to Starbucks, yes. and that's where I end and you yes. take over. Okay, well, Starbucks, they love, they can't give you your coffee unless you give them a name. And sometimes it'll just be me in there. I'm like, it's just me, man. Just, you know, my order. So what I like to do, because Owen is a Welsh name, it's a white name, I like to give them a really black name. It's enjoyment for me. And, uh, you know, so whenever they go name, I go, Le Demartius. Le Demartius. Le Demartius. And I just look at them with a straight face like this. And they all have the same reaction. They go, oh, okay, um, how do you spell that? And then I go, here we go. L. So you're a bit indignant. Yeah, I'm extremely <laughs> indignant. <laughs> L. Apostrophe. Demartius. <laughs> <laughs> they're writing this on the cup, right, as you say. Writing it on the cup, and uh, and uh, one time it backfires on me uh, because I paid with a credit card, and the Starbucks they, the chip reader wasn't working, so she was about to swipe it, but she looked at the name and she goes, "Little Demartius, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's me. What's up?" She goes, "Do you have an ID?" <laughs> so that's when I realized the name of my card does not was it Demartius? No, it says Owen Smith. So I still tried to stay in it, stay indignant, and I go, oh, here we go. You going to be for real? You going to ask a black man for his ID after everything Starbucks just went through? Didn't y'all just have diversity training? Like, what's up? And she goes, I'm black. Yes, I need to see something. <laughs> she got busted. Got busted. And so she said the best thing. She looks at my card, my, my, my ID and my credit card, and she just goes, if you're going to be an asshole, have cash. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Owen tells me this story. <laughs> yes. The camera's shut down. The set is over. We walk into the production office together. I sit down in my chair, and next to my coffee cup from Starbucks is your cup from Starbucks. And son of a gun, I couldn't believe it. On the side of the cup, it said... Let the Martius. So this wasn't a comedy routine. This was a real story. I I really do it. At that moment, I fell in love with you, man. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest. That you're telling me this stuff on camera, yeah. and I walked in, and there it was, right before my eyes. That's a great story. Thank you. Yeah, and, 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 buddy, this has been a pleasure. Thanks, man. I bought another cup for you. I bought another one that says Le Demartius on well, it. So anybody who's listening, I'm going to take a picture of my Demartius cup. I'm yeah. going to put that online. Owen and I will take a picture of it together. We'll post it online. <laughs> and it's a great story. You know, I wanted Owen to be here today because I so respect him as a man. You know, his discipline growing up, his, his passion, humility, Thanks, relationships. Yeah. You're just a solid, good guy. And we should all remember that we can pursue what our passion is. At the same time, we pursue things that are logical. And Owen did that. He pursued his education as he pursued his comedy craft. And now, uh, really, he's become almost a combination of all of the above. And the success is obvious when you do both, when you chase your passion and your dreams and protect yourself uh, uh, logically as you do it. I'll be right back with my favorite part of the show, your calls. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. The national championship game is set and the NFL playoffs are right around the corner. Where should you go if you want to place a bet? 
BetDSI is where you should go. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online and has built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. To help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit to start winning and get up to $2,500 free. That's double your money right from the get-go. And when it comes to football, BetDSI has every wager you could ever want or imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on it. You can bet on NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, eSports, all other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrity, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI.com today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll straight away. That's promo code TAFFER101 to get in the action and get paid. BetDSI.com. Shut it down! All right, John, let's get into these audience calls. We have Ryan from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? Hey, not too bad, John. How are you? Good. Getting cold there for uh, uh, Christmas week? Oh, you know, it's not it's not too bad, actually. Uh, I'm on vacation in Australia right now, so it's pretty pretty warm. Wow. And, uh, but back home, it's definitely cold. It's funny. Uh, so are, it's next year there right now when we're talking, right? It's already. It, uh, it, it is. Yes, it is. Well, this is this is historic on my podcast, Ryan. Just for a moment, this is the first time I've ever had somebody on today who's in next year. So, so uh, <laughs> this is a historic well, I moment. Be here first. So, you had an interesting note that you sent me, and you, you you got you your father owns a residential construction company with, with three of his siblings, and all yes. four are really obviously big, uh, uh, irreplaceable members. Uh, uh, and big contributors, and your concern is that they're starting to get older and they won't be able to do yeah. the same work in a few years. So what is their strategy? You know, First of all, hats off that you're thinking this way, that you're thinking ahead, because every business oh, owner you. has to have an exit strategy, right? There's mm-hmm. really three aspects to, to a business. One is developing it, operating it, and then typically selling it so or exiting from it somehow. You know what? The, there's a good news to this. If the three or four of them, you know, start to get to a point where physically they can't do the labor anymore, it gives them time to sell more. It gives them time mm-hmm. to knock on more doors, go to more association dinners, meet some other subs and trade people. Uh, uh, so when you think about it, if each of them spent 20% of their time selling and networking and finding new business, they'd probably increase their revenue substantially, don't you think? Well, see, the thing is, they they're already busy. Like they they don't the the name travels really well in the town that they're at, and they they pretty much are at the maximum capacity of the amount of work that they can do, and have been for a certain amount of years. The the name travels so well down there. I, I talked to one of them, and even my dad about you know instead of just doing the construction stuff, doing like bids and doing uh like uh, just bidding out and getting consulting from other places around there. And that seemed interesting to him. I don't know if they want to continue to work though. They've been working their butts off. My grandpa started the business uh, when he was, or when my uncles and my aunt were uh, teenagers and they've been working since then. Wow. So their bodies are falling apart. They're ready for a break. And not Do you want work. to get into business? So what's that? Do you want to get into business? 
No, see, I worked for them in high school and college, and, you know, I, I enjoyed doing the labor, but uh, I, I like the office job and just doing a little bit more thinking stuff. I have one cousin that's in it now, and he unfortunately doesn't want to continue with the business just from the way it's going. It's in a small town. He wants a little something bigger and better, you know? Yeah. Sometimes in a situation like that, you know, three, four, five years out, uh, uh, the, the four uh, siblings will bring in somebody or elevate somebody within the company to start to become a very active manager, start to become a very active participant with the intention. And I've done this with restaurants that I own where I'll sell the restaurant to the general manager. So, you know, you sell the company to two or three of the people that work there at the exit and they give you a certain amount of money down and and you hold the paper and over five or six or eight years, they, they eventually buy you out. But you stay involved as a consultant, and, and you know the name, the brand affiliation, and, and the people stay involved. But they become more like licensors, if you will, or, or just mm-hmm. a, a chairman uh, uh, rather than active people running the company. And exit strategies like that can work very well because they can almost pick who they want to hand it off to. And they can have a three- or four-year plan to eventually turn over ownership of the company and buy out each of the siblings. That's a very typical mm-hmm. way a private business like that is done. Restaurants are turned like that all the time. Uh, they're sold to family members that way. They're sold to management that way. Uh, uh, but typically they're inside transactions because a stranger is not very likely to buy the company. But an insider is, Ryan. And, and, and yeah. that's the way you got to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to answer the question. Thank you. My pleasure, man. Have a really good – well, New Year's over for you, man. Then, you know. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say I uh, hope you have the good ones I did. Great. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Well, that was historic. I was actually talking to him next year, right, uh, 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 Corey, but he, he was uh, – I'm still initiated. Dude is a year ahead of me. A funny story. Many years ago, Nicole and I were in New Zealand, and, and we were doing a bunch of work uh, for – a brewery there, and we were uh, uh, traveling all around the country. And then when we came home, of course, we uh, arrived yesterday from the day we left. And that was the first time we'd ever experienced uh, uh, going back in time that way. But you lose a day going there, but you get it back coming back. Anyway, so uh, I think our next caller is Doug from Windsor City, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Corey, we got Doug? Yep. Hello, how are you? Doug, this is John Taffer. So you 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 manage a, a store for a water company, and it, it's not the greatest location in the world. It's not the biggest company in the world, but it's still reflective of your personality and who you are. So you want to turn it into a winner, and I just want to tell you, hats Correct. off for that. So you're you're trying to take it to a level past where it, where it would go on its own. Fair, Doug. Exactly. Exactly. That's very correct. So let me share a couple of thoughts with you uh, on what you want to do. The great thing about the business that you're in is it has frequency to it. People need to buy it again and again and again and again. So you need to think that there's three ways that you can grow business in your store. First is new customers. You got to get more new customers. We'll talk about that in a minute. Second is frequency. You got to get them to come more often. And then the third is you got them to spend, get them to spend a little more while they're there. Does that make sense? So, yes. So those are the three things that you have to accomplish if you really want to impact that store. So, how do you get people to to draw new customers? Well, you can't afford advertising and such. That's not going to make sense. But do you have the right kind of bright lettering and, and call to actions on the windows of your store? Uh, we do. We have we have signs. Uh, the signs are good. 
The only thing that's not great is our sign on the, like the front of our plaza. For whatever reason, there's only a sign on one side, not both. So what does the sign say? Is it just the brand and the name of the store? Yeah, it, it, it has the name of the store, Pure Water Brand, which is the name of our brand, yeah. So is, there, are there, then, is it a storefront with windows and such? So why doesn't are there any like Christmas sales or or four get one free or or come in for a free um, Christmas present or a, a free free chocolate bars with the purchase of what is there any call to action not a sign a call to action on your windows? We we offer uh, buy ten get one free. Does it say it on the windows? Of anywhere? any of our products. Does it say it anywhere? I I don't think so. It, we we gave out a card, so it does say inside the store, but I don't think it says on the windows. Okay, well, inside the store is going to help you when people are in there, but it's not going to get Correct. them in. So yeah. you've got to think of a couple That's of true. things. One, you've got to go stand in your parking lot or go across the street and look at your store and say, okay, what letters, what colors, what can I do to put on those windows and say one free bottle with 10 or something? And that's called a call to action. It isn't just okay. a brand. It's giving people a reason to come in now. Special Christmas offers. You could have put something on a window. Special Christmas deals. A special Christmas sale. New Year sale. January sale. Blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of things that you can put on those windows to say, gee, I should stop in now. And we call those call that's to actions. That's actually very good idea. So that's one. Okay. Two, if people don't see okay. you, you're invisible. If you're invisible, you're irrelevant. So think of that you want to pick letters that, that are brightly colored. Also, think about flags or anything that you can put on the front of your store that gets more people to notice you. So you want to be seen. Okay. You then want to have some call to actions on the window. And now when they come inside, you have your buy one, ten, get one free deal. So that will upsell them to spend more. So you, now you have to have merchandising programs inside the store to increase sale levels. And you always okay. want to have something on the counter that you can sell them for an extra 2 3 $4, an insulated water bottle, or something that you can sell them at the counter to up that sale another 2 or $3. So if you work uh, uh, the call to action, your visibility... Work that merchandising on the inside with some offers and give people some kind of a frequency card. You know, our, our Christmas sale ended at the first of the year, but here's a special card for you. You still get one for t- uh, free with every 10 next month. Now, oh, okay. Oh, okay. So I'm extending the sale just for you. So that's a bounce back, and that drives frequency. So think to yourself, how can I do call of actions? How can I give them something in the store that gets them back sooner? And what can I give them to increase the amount of sale of each transaction? And, and that's while a good, they're in there, right? Yep, yeah. while they're in there. That's a good starting point for you, buddy. Okay. That's a very good, very good idea. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Happy New Year. All right, I have Jeff from Westchester County. Hey, Jeff. John Taffer here. Hey, John. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Did I catch you by surprise there for a minute? <laughs> I think I had a heads up, but I, I was ready for you. Great. So, so uh, uh, by the way, I, I am uh, uh, born in Scarsdale and Hartsdale in the Westchester County area, so I, I, I know where you are very well. You live in, one of, in, I think, one of the greatest areas in America, uh, Westchester County. Oh, yes. I mean, you, you were very close to me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love being here, raising my family. It, it, it's a great place to be. Yeah, it's Great certainly. place to live. So, so your, your question absolutely. was interesting in your notes. So you're a CPA. 
uh, uh, obviously yes. an, an assertive and a good one. And you're looking at getting more into the restaurant business and, and I'll say even a hospitality space a little bit. And uh, what you were asking was, you know, if you wanted to expand your firm into bars and restaurants, uh, uh, you know, what are the things that, that I would suggest you do and focus on that would make you different? and give you a competitive edge. And Jeff, hats off, man. It's a great question, and I'm excited to talk with you about it because it, 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 it's also going to hit a few bar and restaurant operators that are listening uh, between the eyes as to some of the things that they need to look at. But as you, as you know, the, the, the two biggest issues in, in the restaurant and bar business are product costs and labor costs, and those are managed by percentage. So I know that I, I can't spend more than 28 or 30% on labor, period. No matter what my revenues are, I can't spend more than that. And I can't spend more than about 21% on beverage costs and about 30% on food costs. There's a couple of other things that are fascinating. If you look at a, a real restaurant or bar budget, you'll find that occupancy cost, that for budgets to work, a bar or restaurant must achieve revenues of about 10 times occupancy cost. So anytime, okay. anytime occupancy cost passes 10% of revenue, that's a real flag for me that we have a revenue issue. We're not going to solve it. Expense management. We have to fix revenue and get occupancy back down to 10% of revenue or, or we're, we're in big trouble. That's a great parameter that I use. Here's where accountants completely blow it in the restaurant and bar yes. business. I give you my okay. information. You generate a P&L for me for, let's say, December. Okay, Jeff? So yeah. now it's yeah. January 5th because you're really good and you're really fast. So it's only five days after the end of the month. And whammo, I get a great operating statement from you. But, it, <laughs> right. but, it, but it's too late. The month ended already. I can't, I <laughs> we can't, can't go back. <laughs> I can't fix it anymore. So what we do right. is, is we use a, a different accounting system that was actually created by Marriott many, many years ago called the 445 accounting system. We don't use calendar months. We use 91-day okay. quarters, and, and period one is four weeks, period two is four weeks, period three is five weeks in every quarter. So, so uh, 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 in quarter two, same one, 445, 445, 445. Every period starts on a Monday. Every period ends on a Sunday. That means that week one, day three, is going to be a Wednesday every year. We're not comparing one month where there's an extra weekend. It's complete historical data. We then do inventories every Sunday, or at least uh, we like to do physical inventories, and we generate something called the BVCW, or a Budget Variance Calculation Worksheet. I don't want to get too detailed. We generate a mini P&L. Every Tuesday morning, every week. Okay. So what happens is you can take fixed costs. You can assume that, okay, A&G runs X amount. You can plug in a weekly number. That can be a forecast. You can plug in marketing expenses as a forecast. But you drop in true labor and true product costs. So every Tuesday morning, your client gets a mini P&L from the week before. We're talking only six, eight lines, Jeff, nothing crazy. Now I okay. know week one, my labor cost is over by 4%. I have to pick that up next week before the month is over. So rather right. than giving them the information after the fact, you can help them get there. And that's the difference uh, okay. between a CPA who's reporting and a CPA who really helps the client become profitable. So if you did that, you position yourself almost, listen, I'm not a normal CPA. Sure, you'll get your reports after the fact. I'm going to give you weekly information that I can pull out of your POS system to make certain that at the end of the month, nothing is a surprise to you. 
if our labor cost is high, we can change it. We can adjust as we go through the month. I'm going to protect your profits by giving you things three times a month that nobody else will even know what I'm talking about in the accounting world. That's powerful. Next. Absolutely, yes. Next is the whole element of forecasting. And I do this all the time. In a simple spreadsheet, I can drop in what my labor cost should be by percentage for servers, bartenders, managers, cooks. I take my 30%, I cut it up by department, and I create a formula on a spreadsheet. So the client simply drops a revenue number in for every day of the week, and it gives him how many hours he can allocate to each schedule in his business as a forecast. Really simple document. So you sit down with them, you wow. say to them, okay, so you're going to do 12 grand next week. You drop that number in this box yourself, and it's going to tell you how many hours you can spend on waitresses, bartenders. Buddy, I'm a different kind of CPA. I'm going to teach you how to make money. I'm not going to show you what you lost after the fact. That's the difference between us and anyone else. Now you're talking. I agree. Yeah, that's powerful. Yes. So that's what you want to think about. Help them forecast their payroll costs so they don't run over. Give them some kind of a weekly reporting document that you can simply pull out of a POS. There's not much to it. It's minutes a week. That just gives them labor costs for the week, product costs for the week. If they run over, they should start doing inventories on their own. But you can make them profitable, and that's really cool. Excellent, excellent. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, yeah, you, you need to do something that's going to separate because everybody can do what, what, you know, everyone can report after the fact. Yeah, but, I agree. But the problem is that's after the fact. And, and for me, it, it, you're right. And for me as a hotel, remember, I used to run resorts and, and run, and I had 17 restaurants at one point. So for me, uh, you know, yeah. the monthly document was just strictly a scorecard. It wasn't a diagnostic tool so much. The weeklies, were, we were all over. You know, and how could we manage next week's numbers to, you know, to make up for the shortfalls of this week's numbers so we hit budget at the end of the month? And you can help them yeah. get there, and nobody else uh, would be doing that in your area would be my guest, Jeff. Oh, awesome. That's great advice. I really appreciate it. Listen, have a great New Year, buddy, and, and uh, send me a note. Let me know how this works out for you. I'd love to see how, hear how you're doing in a little while. Oh, I certainly will. Take care, Jeff. Bye-bye. Now, see, Corey, there are cool accountants in the world. Here's a guy who's trying to create you know, a practice that really serves his clients well, and he realizes that this is a different kind of business. He needs to go at it differently. A lot of guys don't think that way. They're just going to give you numbers after the fact, and, and you know, those are exactly the kind of CPAs you don't want to work with. You want to work with CPAs who actually help you get there, not tell you when you screwed up after. Uh, 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 that gets old real quick. I think we have one other caller. Yeah, John. So we have Adam from Nashville, Tennessee, and he's curious about the art of asking questions. Hello, this is Adam. Adam, this is John Taffer. How you doing, man? Hey, John. How you doing, man? Thanks for taking my call. I'm a big fan. Oh, my pleasure. I was just reading your note, and I, and I got to tell you, man, uh, uh, you are a pretty astute guy and obviously a really good salesperson. So have you been through formal sales training and such? Well, I've just kind of grown up in the in a sales environment, John. Um, you know, and, and that's really what I wanted to ask you about is, you know, just kind of how you formulate your communication and how you formulate these questions that, you know, you're selling your prospects and your clients just by asking them questions. And I'm just really intrigued by that. So, but I appreciate you saying that. You know, it, uh, of, you're very astute. And what I do is, you know, I can tell you to do something, but if I can get you to tell yourself, uh, that's far more powerful. So, first of all, you'll notice I'm always shaking my head yes when I ask a question. Always. 
Yes. I'm always looking at you in a way that causes you to start shaking your head yes before you even answer. So there's a mechanical aspect of this as well. Body language matters. You can't have your arms crossed. You can't, you know, have a body language that, that is a, a barrier, if you will, to the other side being open. So that's really important. So you'll notice I'll lean in when I'm sitting at the table so I'll have closer eye contact. That sort of opens up and breaks down barriers. I'll make sure that my body language is non-threatening typically at those times when I'm trying to get them to, to buy in. And then I'll move my head in a positive way so that even before they hear it, they know what's coming at them is positive in nature if they stay positive themselves. And it's all very subliminal. So now you're in the middle of a sentence that I'm laying on you. Your sort of defenses have dropped a little bit. You have a positive approach in because I'm shaking my head in a positive way when I'm looking at you. And then I'm conclude by I'm sort of going to ask you an idiot question that I know you're going to answer the way I want you to. And, you know, if, you, if I said to you, you know, is, uh, does that, is that blue wall ugly? You could say no. There, you know, some, but if I said to you, know, is it possible that some people could walk into this room and say that that blue wall is ugly? Well, you can't say no to that. So what can I get the affirmative out of? You know, what can I get that yes? And I have to understand that sometimes it's in steps. The other key thing, and I'm going to talk real sales training here with you for a second, and, and, you know, I think this is a great topic that we're talking about, Adam. You know, salespeople can sell features or benefits. Features might be, well, you know, I sell an insurance policy. It's only going to cost you $80 a month, blah, blah, blah. But what's the benefit? I mean, I don't, I don't really want to write you a check for $80 a month for features. What the hell does it mean to me? And when you start saying things like, if you do this, that'll happen. If you do that, this'll happen. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Would you do this if it was available to you? Do you agree that this could be a good opportunity for you? So you're taking them through a, a journey, if you will, and a process where things start to get positive and uh, uh I, I, you know, will turn in a sales mode. I'll turn negative on people sometimes. You know, I'll look at somebody and say, do you want to, is this what you want to be for the rest of your life? Or do you want to be something? Sign here. I mean, I'll, I'll take it in that direction too. But at the end of the day, anytime you can get somebody to shake their head back at you, you're winning. So how do you do that? It's the way you present your questions. And lastly, nobody can ever, when I was talking about this on Fox Business uh, just yesterday, uh, nobody can ever walk away from a conversation or transaction with you that doesn't give them dignity. So your questions have to give them dignity. They have to make them feel smart when they answer them. They have to feel like they're right on the money, that they're right there with you, that they're in the know, that there's nothing th that about this question that takes any dignity away from them. So if I give you an opportunity to agree with me, and provide dignity to yourself at the same time, you're going to do it. If I give you that same chance to agree with me, but it costs you some dignity, you might not. So dignity and giving people a way to feel good about agreeing with you is really, really critical in that scenario. So I know that you sell financial services and insurance and such. You know, The point I would ask to, to, to men is, how is your wife going to feel tonight when she goes to sleep knowing that she has this protection now when you go to work every day and she worries about your health and she thinks you work too hard and you know how she feels about you she thinks you work too hard she's worried about your health she's worried about your diet she's worried about her future too in that 
How will you feel tonight knowing that she has the security? I mean, what does that mean to her? What does that mean to you? That's what you're selling. You're not selling insurance. You're selling something very emotional, very personal, and you have to sell the way it feels, not what it costs, not what the numbers are. You have to sell the way it feels because there is a great peace of mind in your product, and it's a way that spouses take care of each other through your products, and people take care of children through your products, and that's what you're selling. Think of the way she's going to feel tonight when she goes to sleep knowing that she has this. Man, I love that. I love that. Thank you very much. That's going to be helpful. Great, Adam. Um, hey, and also, I'm excited about what you and Grant Cardone are going to be doing together. Um, very excited to see what y'all do. And I got no shame in my game right now. I got to ask you, you know, I'm, I'm a Nashville Predators fan, and I know that you're a Golden Knights maniac, and I would love to join you for a Golden Knights game sometime and cheer that team on with you. Well, you know, I t- I'll tell you, Corey will get your information and and uh, we'll figure out when you come into Vegas. But I got to tell you, you know, my Knights are on a heck of a rise. I think we've run 10 of 13. We're now uh, just slipped into second place last night with a 5-1 victory. And I got to tell you, right now, the Knights are looking strong. And look, I have a lot of friends in Nashville and, and uh, uh that's a, it's a great uh, a game any time we pay the Predators or you guys play us. We started a great little uh, 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 rivalry last year. And uh, you got a great hockey yeah. team. You, gr- you got a great hockey team, but there's only one issue, Adam. The Knights might be a tad better, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, my friend. Well, I think it's, yeah, hey, thanks for the call, John. Take care. What an interesting guy, you know, to, 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 as a salesman. He, he really understood that in Bar Rescue, I'm always shaking my head yes when I'm talking to people. And he's right. I'm pitching you on your own future to get you to buy in. It's ridiculous that I would have to do that to somebody in the first place, that I got to sell them on themselves in essence or sell them on, on doing themselves good. But he's exactly right. In very many cases, that's what I have to do because for some reason, they weren't sold on themselves before I got there. Yeah, no, I don't know, John. He lost me when he started talking about the Predators. <laughs> yeah, he went down quick like a lead weight after that. Well, as I end this show, I'm going to go home and watch the ball fall from a nice, mellow New Year's Eve. I want to wish everybody a great 2019. Think about it. Uh, it's been a pretty good year when you really put away all the dissent and the screaming and yelling. Day to day, we're doing pretty good. And next year can be your best year ever. I'm expecting it to be my best year ever, and I really hope it's your best year ever, too. I want to wish everybody a great, happy, healthy, prosperous, fulfilling, and loving New Year. And I'll talk to you all next year. And don't forget, hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts, go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Also, if you want to be on the show with me, just send an email to podcast at johntafford.com. That's podcast at johntafford.com, and you'll be on the show. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 